Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Alexander Rocklin, whose book, The Regulation of Religion and the Making of Hinduism in Colonial Trinidad, came out earlier this year with UNC Press. This book forces readers to take apart their assumptions about what religion is, and then builds up a fascinating account of the emergence of Hinduism in Trinidad into something recognizable as a religion. Set in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the book draws from a wide array of sources which hold some great stories. By bringing the history of Hinduism to bear on the history of Trinidad, the book makes you think about both in new ways. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really great to have you here, and I'm very excited to talk about this book with you. But before we start, I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about how you came to the project in the first place. Sure. So I had done coursework uh, as an undergraduate in uh, courses in religion in the Americas, as well as religions of South Asia. I studied abroad in Nepal and studied Hinduism and Buddhism there. Um, and then after I graduated from college, I spent time, a, a year uh, living in Mexico. Um, and so when I came into my master's program, I was very interested in studying religions of South Asia. And also I was very interested in religions of the Americas. Um, and I actually took a class with, uh, with Dane Borges at the University of Chicago, uh, my, the second year of my master's program, uh, of course, on religion in the Americas. And I kind of went to him, the final project for that uh, course was a, a kind of bibliographical paper. Um, and I didn't like any of the topics, so I came to him and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be studying South Asia. I want to find something that's connected to that um, in the Americas. And so he let me kind of go off script and, and do a, a paper on, uh, on Jose in Trinidad. Um, and so I, I found this, uh, this collection of uh, primary sources about this massacre in 1884 in Trinidad. Um, this massacre of, of participants in, in a Bahorum, or Jose, um, that was collected by Kelvin Singh. Um, it really kind of brought me in these, you know, the, the descriptions of these, uh, you know, when people go in procession, they have these large models of the tombs of the imams, Hussein and Hassan, who are the grandsons of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and in particular, in looking at these uh, primary sources, I was struck by the, the way in which people were having these arguments about whether or not Jose was religion or not. Um, and so I began to, you know, continue to develop this paper when I was in my PhD program, um, continuing to think that I would go study in South Asia. And I did uh, continue to do coursework and language work on studying Hindi and Urdu. Uh, and then finally, at some point, when I was kind of had to make a decision, I was like, well, can I just, can I just do this and, and study Trinidad? And, and so my, you know, my, my advisors and folks in my department, you know, encouraged me to, to pursue, pursue whatever, I, I, whatever I found interesting. Um, and in particular, I thought that the case of Trinidad was very compelling because I was very interested in, uh, in the relationship between Hindus and Muslims in India and also the role of uh, the category of religion in the, the regulation of colonized populations um, and the ways in which uh, subalterns were, were able to kind of incorporate colonial categories and use them for their purposes. Um, and Trinidad was really a kind of microcosm uh, because indentured laborers were... Um, 
uh, were, were so high, their lives were highly regulated. They were stuck on plantations. Um, you really could, could see the ways in which um, there were these kind of profound effects of, of colonial regulation on people's lives. Um, but I was also interested, very interested in the ways in which uh, people of Indian and African descent were kind of coming together in different kinds of ways to create, to create lives for one another within the, within the constraints of these colonial, uh, these uh, kind of the tyranny of colonial categories. Yeah. And one of the really interesting things about your book is that it really requires a step back um, from a lot of assumptions about religion, in particular, the idea that Hindu, or maybe, maybe you want to push this and say many religions, right, are, are this kind of a, a clearly distinguishable social entity is, I think, how you put it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you want to kind of undo that. And, and the book actually talks about the process by which it becomes that thing. Um, and we'll talk about that um, a, a little bit later. But I, I was wondering if there was a moment or a document or a source that kind of prompted that idea it sounds a little bit like you found that already in the Jose documents that mm. this idea of this, this kind of, it's, it's, it's much less solid than a religion. Mm. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, so I think you're right. I, w- I would definitely say that, you know, the book itself is about Hinduism and kind of like the prehistory of Hinduism in, in Trinidad, like what happens before Hinduism becomes a, a thing, you know, quotation marks. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that the kinds of arguments that I'm making, are, are applicable to other what we think of as religious traditions today. That I'm, you know, I'm broadly conceived interested in the processes of world religion making. How, how you know different kinds of social formations begin to think about themselves in in these the terms of religion, right? That religion itself is not a natural universal category, but has a particular history. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely you know in looking at the examples of of Jose in Trinidad and, and particularly the the discussions around this massacre in 1884. Um, you know, when the, the people who were participating in Jose in, in the late, in the mid 1880s, right, they weren't thinking of themselves as being like, you know, we're Muslims doing this, this Muslim uh, ritual, right? Because, because Jose or, or Muharram, as it's referred to in India, um, you know, today people think of it as being a, a Muslim and particularly Shi'i Muslim, uh, commemoration of the of the, the martyrdom of the of the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, um, but you know one one particular document that's really struck me was there was this petition by this this we would, today we would say he's a Hindu headman, uh, somebody who was you know had a, a, a leadership position on an estate. Uh, his name was Suku, uh, and he wrote this petition to the government in, in, in 1884 after the gov- the government had had said you know you're not allowed to take. The tajas, these giant models of the tombs of the of the imams, on on public roads, and so he he writes this petition, or, or you know him and a group of people write this petition petition, um, and from the names that are listed, you know some of them we would say are would be Hindu, or the government says some of them are Hindu and some of them are Muslim, um, but none of the people who are who sign on, they don't the, the petition itself doesn't talk about them being Hindu or Muslim, doesn't talk about Muharram being a Muslim uh, you know ritual. Um, but they talk about it as their religion. Um, and so that kind of struck me that, you know, that, that the government is saying you can't go out on public roads, that it's not really religious. Like that it's not essentially religious to take these tajas out on the public roads. And then the, the indentured laborers are coming back and saying, no, it, it is religious. And then the government saying, no, it's not religious. Um, <laughs> and so it was this back and forth, this argument back and forth about whether or not it's religious or not. Um, and particularly the way in which, in, at least in the petition, Right, these these 
Indo-Trinidadians are kind of adopting Protestant norms for what religion should be like. You know, they say we're we're very sober in our when we go out, and we're you know this is part of our sincere belief. Um, and so they're kind of picking up these uh, kind of uh, ideals from Protestant Christianity and, and and using them to to shape how their rituals are being portrayed. Um, to as a, I would think it, you know say as a kind of tactic um, in arguing with the government. So since we're talking about Jose, I had a question I was holding for later, but but now I want to ask it now. So um, uh, how do you how did writing this book uh, make you rethink or think or invent or reflect on methodology? Because it seems like this is a kind of really intriguing book from the perspective of methodology. You're kind of you're looking for you're looking for something, but then also arguing that it's not actually there. And. Um, I was really, I was really intrigued by that challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in, in thinking about the examples, and uh, and I talk about this a little bit in the introduction, and also in, I think in the fourth chapter too, that there are, I mean, kind of, I mean, the difficulty is, um, I think a professor in undergrad described something similar to this. It's kind of like trying to to write a computer program and run it at the same time. I mean, you're kind of watching people negotiating these categories. And and kind of looking at the, the kind of discourse clouds that get produced around uh, around these ritual ritual communities, uh, but also trying to study what people are doing at the same time. I mean, it's, it's a really kind of challenging thing to see. On the one hand, as a, as a historian and sort of thinking thinking about what I'm doing as a historian, you know, kind of combing through these through through sitting and, and reading all of these newspapers and colonial documents. Um, and then when you kind of find find a, a fragment of something, try and kind of look through it and comb through it and try and find, uh, to, to the degree possible, the, the kind of voices and, and per- perspectives of, uh, of indentured laborers, people of Indian descent, and uh, people of African descent, too, as far as they're participating in it as well. Um, and try to kind of understand, you know, whether it's Maharm or, or Jose or, or firewalking, um, what exactly are what are they doing in these ritual ritual performances um, and trying to get a sense of that? But at the same time, how are they talking about what they're doing? Um, and this kind of self, this self-reflexive move in um, for, for subalterns themselves um, was, was kind of what I was, what I was trying to pick out. Right. And so for, for historians of the Caribbean, um, the category of Obeya uh, might be more familiar to um, to people who are thinking about these kinds of issues, and you, um, I noticed that you talk about Obeya um, in a couple of different places, and um, I wanted just to hear you talk about the relationship between Obeya and the kinds of relationships um, with superhuman beings, as you call them, that you trace in the book. How did you think about those two together, and and what kinds of what kinds of things popped up in the documents? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, so the the Obeya is is a problematic category that's, you know, historians uh, and anthropologists have kind of been arguing over uh, in, you know, Caribbean studies and in religious studies. And, um, and it's a really difficult category to define um, in part because a lot of the evidence that we have, certainly historically, were, is stuff produced by, uh, by colonizers themselves. Um, and historically, people who, so in, within the Anglophone Caribbean, Obia has been illegal, it was illegal during the, during the, um, the period of slavery, beginning with Tacky's War in Jamaica, um, and then it, and it was seen during during the period of slavery as a um, 
as something that was a, something that would cause slave uprisings. Um, and then after the end of slavery, it turns to something kind of like, uh, you know, fraudulent practice. Um, and Diana Payton has done really excellent work on this. Um, but um, so we, there's, when you have evidence of people doing what the colonists are calling obia, typically the people, the person accused of doing obia, they tend to deny that they're doing obia. Right. For the most part, even today, people would never say that they're do, they do obia. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, the really common thing for people to say is that they're actually they're doing science. Um, and and Brent Carlson uh, is doing some really fascinating work on on the idea of science um, in, in Trinidad and in the Caribbean. Um, but at the same time, in trying to kind of negotiate, particularly uh, you know, I was looking at examples of court cases um, in the early 20th century, uh, where there were Indo-Trinidadians were being accused of practicing obia. Um, which most, you know, most typically was defined uh, as kind of black magic or African witchcraft. Um, but at the same time, there was a kind of legal technical definition of it as the assumption of supernatural powers. Um, and so, so in looking at these court cases, I was trying to read them kind of against themselves and think about how, you know, the, the cases themselves provide evidence of the ways in which uh, Indo-Trinidadians were engaging in certain kinds of, of practices to, to maintain relationships with, with different sorts of superhuman beings, including, uh, including gods, uh, as well as spirits of the dead. Um, but then when they end up in court being accused of obia, they deny oftentimes that, that any of this, the stuff that's presented as evidence is actually accurate. Um, and so... I mean, it's kind of a problem of, you know, what, what is the degree to which we can take seriously the, the evidence that's presented in court by, uh, by um, kind of police provocateurs and, and, um, uh, and police officers. And I think we need to be kind of critical of that, but that's, at the same time, it seems to be revealing of, uh, of the ways in which um, really, you know, people, certainly in the, in the 19th and into the early 20th century, were engaging in these really heterogeneous Practices and 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 really their their practices were cutting across reified religious and racial lines. Um, so, for instance, in in the the chapter on Obia, uh, you know, I look at the two two cases at the very end of one of Biru and one of Mirage, and and Mirage is this guy who's accused of Obia, um, and you know he says I'm a, when he's in court on, on on he's on the stand he says I am a Hindu priest you know I only work with Hindus you know and everything I do is kind of very orthodox uh, but the government is like you know, the, 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 the um, uh, police officer is like, you know, you know, you're working with Creoles and you're doing bush baths and you have crosses and, you know, you have rosaries uh, and, you know, and, and a statue of an angel. And he's like, you know, none of that stuff is mine. Uh, you know, and I don't work with, with Creoles. And, you know, this, this Spanish uh, mother and daughter came to me and tried to get me to do a bush bath. And I, you know, I, I, they forced me to do it. And I didn't want to do it or whatever. Um, so it's this this, again, the, the kind of contradictions in the kind of evidence that's being presented, um, which seems plausible, but at the same time, evidence that the people on trial are, are denying as being true. And they certainly are, are, have a very particular interest in denying that any of it's true because this is the evidence that's, you know, will get them thrown in jail or, uh, or, you know, potentially with hard labor. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a, it's a problem. Um, and I want to try and take seriously both, both of the, the evidence presented in court, but also... The, the kinds of arguments that people who are on trial are, are making themselves. Um, it's, and that itself is evidence of the ways in which um, Indo-Trinidadians are incorporating the category of religion and, and using it as well as the category, you know, racial categories too. 
to try and present their to, to, to try and protect their own interests. Well, that, that's a really kind of paradoxical thing that emerges from the book is that out of all of these interactions and all of these kinds of back and forth and the uses of categories is that is that th- those kinds of interactions are actually productive of this category that we now call religion, right? And so um, it's really fascinating and really um, really interesting to watch how you do that and how you pull things out. And eventually we do kind of come to this category that, you know, it's still contested, but people do agree um, that, th- that there is this thing <laughs> called religion, including um, this great um, moment when you talk about these books from Chicago that were very instrumental in teaching people what it was that they were supposed to be um, ideally thinking about. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 Lawrence, the Lawrence Scott and Company yeah. was, uh, Lauren DeLawrence was a famous um, magician or a wizard. I mean, he's a practitioner of magic. Um, in uh, he was in Chicago, and so he circulated a lot of his a lot of the books that he published were I uh, kind of plagiarized them. He stole them from from previous magic books, grimoire. Um, but um, but they were so yeah. I mean, so we have these you know into particularly the guy Mirage uh, who I mentioned who was on trial for for Obia had you know says you know you know all of my books are are correct religious books, and you know I'm a Hindu and I only do Hindu stuff. But he's found with DeLorence's books in his possession. Um, and DeLorence himself was, you know, claimed to have been in communication with Hindu spirits and was do- practicing what he called uh, uh, Hindu magic. Um, so it's this, but, but at the same time, right, Mirage is seemingly experimenting with DeLorence, you know, this uh, kind of quote unquote Obia books, but also is very familiar with British colonial expectations for what religion ought to look like. Um, and so is able to, to use that um, for his own purposes to sort of deny the accusation that he is kind of misattributing the agency of, of these books, for instance, um, or, his, or, or that he himself, you know, he's not claiming that he himself can, can chain, you know, can find people's lost loves or find lost objects or get people's jobs back. Um, that he's just, he says he's just praying to God, right? He prays and prayer is the only way to, to, to kind of get things done. And God is the only one who can really do these things. The second half of the book, by the second half of the book, we've we've come to Hinduism as a kind of world religion, as you call it. And um, you talk about the way that it emerges out of these kind of interactions between missionaries and scholars and Indian elites. Uh, and uh, I was really fascinating by the, fascinated by the discussion of organizations and institutions and the ways that they policed Hinduism in certain kinds of venues and sort of um, tried to shape it in a way that was both legible, but also kind of follow according to some kind of definition of respectable or something like that. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, I mean, yeah, I was very fascinated with the sort of like Hindu respectability politics um, that begin to emerge with the, with the rise of Hindu identified um, Indo Trinidadian middle-class organizations. Um, so, I mean, I mean the ov- overall, right, my argument in the book is that Hinduism, right, is not this kind of thing that Indians brought with them uh, in the mid-19th century when they first arrived as, uh, as indentured laborers, and it really only gets produced as a, as a widespread collective identity and social formation um, in, beginning in the, the early 20th century, starting off in the 19-teens when the, the Arya Samaj missionaries, the Arya Samaj is a, uh, is a, a kind of Hindu reformist organization, they, they first begin to arrive uh, in the 19-teens, and by the 1920s, the late 1920s and early 1930s, you have this kind of uh, 
what, what is thought of as a kind of orthodox Hindu reaction. You have the kind of creation of, of a kind of quote-unquote orthodox uh, Hindu identity. And in the early 1930s is the, fir- the first creation of these two um, uh, Hindu organizations, the Sanatan Dharam um, Association and the Sanatan Dharam Board of Control, uh, that are in competition with one another um, and that are, as you, as you mentioned, are very interested in, uh, in kind of policing popular what becomes popular Hindu practice, uh, and also are kind of policing one another. They're they're in, they're fighting with one another about you know who is real or who's really orthodox, who is really Hindu. Um, and I was very you know interested in tracing like the the contestations over who gets to count as a Hindu, um, and how that's being defined as a as an ethno racial category on the one hand, and also as a religious category on the other. So I was really fascinating fascinated uh, at that point because. Uh, just to put it in context with the greater Caribbean and what's happening in Trinidad, um, that process seems to be happening at the same time as the end of indenture and rising labor movements, not just in Trinidad, but also all over the Caribbean. And you, uh, understandably, you don't dwell on that too much because you have a lot to cover in the book. But I was wondering if, um, is there some kind of a connection there or do you see a relationship between those two uh, processes? Um, so with the, you mean with, with the end of indenture? Yeah, I mean I think yeah. yeah so indenture end, ends in 1917. Um, I mean I think probably the 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 you know by that point I think a lot of laborers had had um, left plantations and had gone to create villages. Um, I mean I think the the kind of rise of of, the, of kind of labor unrest in the 1930s probably had a big had an impact on kind of how um, how Hindus were getting to organize themselves. There were kind of fractures uh, locally in Trinidad in terms of the there's the Trinidad Working Man's uh, they had this Working Man's Association, this like a uh, labor party, um, and so there there were fights, kind of internal fights there, um, and this kind of question about uh, the degree to which you know. Uh, the degree to which West Indian culture was was a, a kind of uh, something that could be marshaled as uh, as part of the creation of of a, of a national identity in Trinidad, um, and so there's a kind of a question of whether or to the degree to which um, Indo-Trinidadian culture was could be West Indian culture, um, and so um, so I, I you know there and part of that then becomes that you know in, in like the legislature for instance there are arguments about. Uh, um, and you can see the way that people bring in Hinduism and how it's being defined to to kind of adjudicate the questions of the day. Uh, so one of the things I look at is the debates about uh, divorce. Um, and there are these kind of rising, there's young uh, kind of Trinidadian nationalists who are pro uh, who are pro divorce and see you know the the, uh, the see see the um, kind of opposition to to allowing divorce in Trinidad as being kind of uh, anti-national and kind of backwards and kind of an old thing. Um, and so in some ways they, they kind of turn to, to Hinduism and say, well, you know, Hinduism ar- allows divorce and this is potentially a, uh, a kind of radical uh, possibility there. Uh, but then at the same time, there are other people who are saying, no, Hinduism does not allow divorce. Um, so, so Hinduism gets, gets drawn into these kind of arguments about um, kind of how, uh, how West Indian culture is being defined um, in, in significant ways. And one of the ways that you talk about it that that was really fascinating to me was as an embodied experience, right? So you have a chapter where you talk about exercise and sport and 
um, the military and drilling. Um, there's this fascinating character, Ranjit Kumar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was hoping that you could talk about him. Uh, he's such an interesting figure and uh, sort of tell us about his aims and his, his ideals and his trajectory in life, which was pretty circuitous. Sure. Yeah. So Roger Kumar is a really fascinating figure. He uh, he he was born in uh, in India. Ends up going to school in England uh, and getting educated there as a as a as a uh, a child and then a young adult. Um, and then you know goes through the kind of colonial gets gets kind of certified and, and gets a place in the colonial bureaucracy in back in India and goes back to India. Um, but then kind of. In, in his own accounts, you know, he has a has a kind of collection of essays that's kind of, that are kind of autobiographical. It says that he encounters corruption in the colonial bureaucracy. Uh, he's in the police force um, and leaves that, and, and actually ends up and is never himself. You know, he doesn't go as an indentured laborer. Is not a is not a uh, somebody who's descended from indentured laborers, but but ends up going to the Caribbean actually as a distributor of, of films and actually brings the first uh, brings the first uh, uh, like talkie. Uh, in you know Indian talkie to Hindi language film uh, to the Caribbean um, called Bala Joban um, and then you know subsequently invests in other other of these films and, and begins to go on tour with them um, and ends up then settling down in Trinidad um, and, and this is so it goes on tour with the films I think in 1935 uh, and by the late 1930s. Uh, when you have the, the kind of this heated battle between, as I mentioned, these two Hindu organizations, the Sanat and Tarim Association and the Sanat and Tarim Board, of, Board of Control, uh, the Sanat and Tarim Board of Control is kind of winning out um, at this point, and they have managed to get a, a missionary to come from uh, from from India. Uh, this guy Purusharam Sharma, uh, who is a, a kind of quote unquote Orthodox Hindu missionary. Um, who is very successful in kind of galvanizing Hindus and, and particularly elite uh, Hindus to the side of the Sanatana Board of Control. Uh, and when, when he finally leaves, Ranjit Kumar positions himself as kind of his heir um, and ends up starting this, this organization called the, uh, uh, the Trinidad Mahasabha, uh, which is basically meant to be a kind of encompassing um, all, all Hindu organizations. So any, any particular Hindu organization in Trinidad would all kind of be a member of this organization, um, and uh, is so. Uh, Raja Kumar, in, in founding this organization, is basically uh, aff- affiliates himself with it with the uh, All India Hindu Mahasabha in Trinidad, or sorry, in India. Um, and part of the the Mahasabha's work in India is this kind of prop that they have this project of masculinization. Um, so there's the the Kind of common narrative which has con- can, continues to in- influence politics in India is this idea that that Muslims were uh, were kind of strong and uh, you know they were one of the kind of mar- quote unquote martial races uh, that the British go- uh, government identifies um, and that that Hindus were were seen as being kind of weak uh, and so the the role of the Mahasabha in India was to kind of build up tough in uh, tough Hindu men. Um, and so you have, for instance, groups like the, uh, the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sabak Sangh in, uh, in India, uh, had these, these local organizations where you know, particularly young men would go and they train with weapons um, and they do kind of calisthenics and they march around. Um, and Rajat Kumar kind of picks up on this, this these, uh, kind of physical culture movement 
in India and brings it to, to Trinidad and starts his own kind of, you have little kids then in uh, beginning in the 1940s, early 1940s, they're, they're kind of marching around uh, in lockstep um, and uh, they, uh, they have a wrestling, a wrestling, you know, wrestling becomes important. They have cricket teams. Um, and um, the idea is that, the, or at least the, the kind of uh, Trinidad Mahasabha ideology is that being in the West Indies and in Trinidad has led to a kind of deculturation uh, of, of, of Indians and particularly Hindus. Um, and so if you could build up particularly Hindu men, they could be, they could kind of have confidence in themselves. And they, then they're also the, the Mahasabha in Trinidad is also doing Hindi language training. People are beginning to lose Hindi uh, as their first language uh, and then getting people to practice Hinduism. Um, and this kind of all around kind of spiritual and physical uh, development of, of Hindu men would, would then allow for the kind of fortification of, of a global Hinduism. Um, and so in particular, the, the Trinidad Mahasabhas uh, situates itself as an international organization, right? And that, that's kind of where this idea of, of the world religion comes into it. This kind of, I, mean, I was interested in the ways in which world relig- the concept of a world religion wasn't performatively enacted, uh, kind of quote unquote locally, uh, by um, by a particular by particular organizations in place, and so you know that these the members of this organization are imagining themselves as doing something similar to you know Hindus in India or Hindus in South Africa or Hindus in Fiji, um, and kind of you know by by marching in, in lockstep and and talking about these Hindus in other parts of the world, kind of then per, kind of performatively creating this world religion uh, right there in Trinidad. Yeah, I liked the extension of Benedict Anderson there, right? And um, when you meant when you suggested that, sure, we can, you know, think about people thinking creating communities by reading newspapers. But what about this idea of marching or these kind of physical actions? I thought, yeah, that's that seems right. That mm-hmm. that's yeah, yeah. That, that physical that that rituals themselves are are are, are kind of form of, of quote unquote imagining. That imagining is a practice. Um, and it's not just sitting and reading newspapers, although certainly that's not you know what Anderson says. You know, right. No. <laughs> not to discount Anderson. Yeah. yeah. No. 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 I, no his, I mean, his work was really formative in my thinking about yeah. how how Hindu nationalism was being done in Trinidad. Uh, okay. So by the same token, it does sound like a very kind of masculinist set of practices, and I was wondering if there was a um, explicitly gendered dimension or were women a kind of afterthought or were they expected to participate? How, how does that figure in? Yeah. So, so particularly you know, the, the evidence that I'm using for uh, the chapter on the Mahasabab um, is the you know, newspaper articles and uh, Rajat Kumar's own writings. And then also that the Mahasabha had a, um, had a, um, a newspaper um, and I mean, women kind of don't come up a lot in a lot of the, the material. And you, I kind of had to uh, kind of read against the grain and try and I was you know, wanted to see how uh, how kind of femininity was being constructed in this case. And so one of the things I do is look. There was a short story that was published in the, the bulletin of the Trinidad Mahasabha to that talks about the, this woman, uh, this young. It's a story about a young woman who her name is Mary, um, and she. Uh, she kind of falls in love with uh, a young man who's a member of the Mahasabha, uh, whose name is Krishna, and he, um, 
you know, is kind of an, an ideal man in the Mahasabha. You know, he does calisthenics and marches around and, uh, and he then, when they fall in love, he begins to teach her Hindi uh, and begins to kind of bring her into, uh, uh, into the Mahasabha. And she, uh, she, she's a nurse as a character, her character is a nurse. And then also he gets into a fight. There's a, there's a, um, uh, a man who's a dogla, quote unquote, a quote unquote dogla, somebody who's both uh, mixed like Indian and African descent. And he attacks the, the, the woman, Mary. Uh, and so Krishna comes in and, and you know, defends her honor uh, and he gets injured and then she nurses him back to health. So it seems like uh, women for the most part, at least in, in uh, Mahasabha ideology are there to be kind of be protected uh, the same way that the land of India is meant to be protected by these, uh, by you know, mem- by members of the Mahasabha who are kind of becoming martial, uh, you know, tough tough guys, um, but also are there to, to nurture, um, to kind of to you know uh, put band-aids on wounds, but also to to kind of raise children, to to teach children uh, what they are learning from their husbands seems to be the kind of model um, that was in place at least for this organization. So you close the book. Uh, I was really struck by a, a phrase that you used. You talk about the notion of haunting, mm-hmm. and you suggest that the second half of the book is haunted by the first, which I kind of understood as um, sort of suggesting that the establishment of world religion was haunted by its non-existence and the heterogeneity of practices and, and of rituals and relationships in the first. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering... Uh, if that's right, <laughs> and I'm wondering um, if you could talk more about that, this notion of haunting. Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, I think I think that sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, I was. I mean, so the the in the the um, postscript, I call it. Um, you know, I talk about this example of uh, Sifrasad Naipal, who was the father of um, of V.S. Naipal, uh, the Nobel laureate. Uh, you know, there's this. You know, I found this set of of kind of events around this Kali sacrifice, which I. Did, couldn't figure out where to put it in the book, but I had to felt like I had to do something with it. I felt like it, it kind of did a good job of kind of tying up the book. Um, but so Sifrasad Naipaul was a uh, was a member of the Arya Samaj, which is this you know he it's a Arya Samaj is this reformist movement. Uh, Sifrasad Naipaul refers to it as modern Hinduism. Uh, they're monotheistic. They don't uh, worship idols. Uh, they're against animal sacrifice, um, and he has this kind of he public he's a he's a, a reporter and he publishes this kind of flippant uh, article where he says that the uh, that Kali devotion is and, and particularly sacrifice to the goddess Kali is kind of superstition. He calls it juju, um, and and he gets them threatening letters from Kali devotees saying that Kali will kill him if he doesn't make a goat sacrifice. Um, and at first he kind of jokes about it, but but you know Kali doesn't leave him alone, and eventually he ends up. Uh, actually making the sacrifice um, and he makes light of it in a, a whole series of articles, but actually V.S. Naipaul in his memoirs writes that actually his father was really kind of, was haunted by this. And it actually, he says it, it actually led to uh, an emotional breakdown that he has, at least in part. Um, and so Kali devotion itself uh, in some ways, you know, w- gets marginalized in, as Hinduism is being created as a, as a quote-unquote world religion in Trinidad. Um, and today, in some ways, is kind of a separate thing. Um, Kali Puja is a kind of almost a separate religion from, from Hinduism in Trinidad today. Um, but even though, you know, uh, kind of middle-class Hindus are trying to, to marginalize 
Kali and everything that she represents, uh, she doesn't go away and she continues to, to kind of bug them. Um, and I think you, you see that uh, in, a, in, a, in a, the ways that although you know, Hindus and particularly middle-class Hindus are trying to create a respectable world religion called Hinduism, uh, and, and in doing so, they're trying to kind of kick out uh, the Christians and the Muslims who are participating in, in what, are, what are being defined as exclusively Hindu rituals. Um, and in some ways, they're trying to kind of say that, that Hinduism is, a, is an Indian religion. Um, and so that they're, they're kind of narrowing the possibilities of Afro-Trinidadians participating in what were being defined as, as, um, as Hindu rituals. Um, the, those attempts to try and standardize and rationalize Hinduism and to quote, quote, quote purify it, um, you were never entirely successful. Um, and are still not today. Um, and so, I, I mean, that was, you know, that, that very often these reformists uh, and, the, you know, these middle-class Orthodox organizations are trying to sort of say that the, the kind of mixed and heterogeneous rituals and, you know, you know, Hindus and Muslims and Christians and Indians and Africans all coming together is a thing of the past, right? And we know proper Hinduism today, um, but, but at the same time, people continue to come together uh, to mix, to cross reified r- racial and religious lines. Um, and, and so, and so the, 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 you know, as you said, the, the kind of first half of the book, which explores that, that heterogeneity of, of religion before Hinduism really does haunt and, and today continues to haunt uh, the category of Hindu. Um, and I think do, does kind of bring the, the idea of, of Hinduism and also world religions more generally into question. So it's a good place to ask you about, or just sort of ask you my final question, which is, what does this mean for Trinidad today? How is or is the, the Trinidadian present haunted by the kinds of processes that you describe in the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, still, you still see these, these kind of arguments about whether or not uh, various uh, kinds of practices are, are, are Hinduism or our religion or not. I mean, I think Kali Puja is a particularly good example um, you know, for, for a long time, uh, and Keith McNeil has, has done really interesting work on, on the history of Kali Puja, um, you know, from the 19, beginning of the 1970s or so, so after the end of the period that I, that I look at, um, from, from around the period where my, where my book ends, Kali, Kali devotion begins to decline in the 1950s or so. Um, and it declines, but then it kind of resurges in the 1970s. Um, and, um, and, ha- and you have then coming together in, in the, the kind of ritual complex of Kali Puja, a whole set of different rituals that for a long time were seen as being problematic, but particularly by people who are engaging in this kind of respectability politics, Hindu respectability politics. Um, but even that then begins to be reformed. And so animal sacrifice was performed as part of Kali Puja, but now that is being uh, kind of marginalized, um, so the, the, set, the, the kinds of arguments that I'm analyzing uh, and debates and problematics that I'm analyzing in the book continue to be a, a set of issues um, and kind of the politics of religion making go on uh, in Trinidad uh, today. Um, you see something on the, other, on the other side of that, you know, you were talking about uh, Hosea Muharram before, uh, with the arrival, I think beginning in the 1980s, of, of a kind of transnational Islam that's particularly influenced by uh, by Salafi Islam from Saudi Arabia, a number of Muslims begin to stop participating in uh, in Muharram or or Jose, uh, because it's not because it's non-Islamic. Uh, they say, um, and so you know, some of my interlocutors and I spent time um, at a mosque 
you know, doing interviews and kind of casually hanging out with a, with an imam. Um, you know, and he said, he told me he growing up, he, he was, you know, would regularly participate in, uh, in Jose. Uh, but once he began to get kind of Islamic education, uh, from, um, uh, from kind of material reading materials that were influenced by, uh, by the kind of Islam that's being, uh, backed by, by places like Saudi Arabia, uh, he began to stop participating in it. Um, because it was, he said, there's something, he said, there's something sacred there, right? He knows that, that stuff is, stuff is going on when they build the Tajas and when they're kind of invoking the Imams, but he says he, he, you know, he's not going to do it, uh, because it's not, it's not really Islam. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, there are, I think there are ways in which the kinds of, of trends I'm, I'm tracing in the book continue on. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people are still doing, uh, still doing Jose, although it's not as popular as it used to be. Um, and you have Hindus and Muslims and, and people of Indian and African descent coming together uh, to, to commemorate the, the, the martyrdom of the imams. So I've taken up a lot of your time. I just before I go, was wondering if you're working on a new project. Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm maybe, I don't know, halfway through uh, working on another book project um, that looks at, um, I look at a series of, of case studies of people of, uh, of uh, people of Afro-Caribbean descent, but also Euro-American and, and Indian descent too, uh, who are in different kinds of ways claiming the category Hindu, uh, kind of identifying as Hindu uh, for different kinds of ethno-racial and, and religious projects. Um and I'm looking at people who are kind of within in the kind of circum larger circum Caribbean, so people who are traveling around to different Caribbean islands, but also going to to the U.S. Uh, and also to to the U.K. and, and India uh, and, and West Africa as well. Um, and so I, I'm, in, I'm particularly interested in looking at the ways and using the category Hindu to think about the ways in which uh, the categories race and religion are really intertwined with one another um, and are co- being co-defined. Um, and actually, so part, part of the project that was published in uh, comparative stu- the journal Comparative Studies in Society and History in 2016. Um, and so kind of picking up on that and, and looking at, um, you know, people, one of, the, one of the people I look at is, uh, is someone we mentioned, Lauren W. DeLawrence, who's this guy uh, who's selling these magic books, uh, who's also summoning Hindu spirits uh, that give him instruction in, in Hindu magic. Um, so hopefully the next, you know, hopefully that will be coming out in the next couple of years, but I don't know. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds really fascinating. I think it's going to open up a whole bunch of conversations like this book will as well. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening and see you next time when I'll be chatting with Professor Jorge Giovanetti about his new book.